Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Learn how to structure your small firm to be a profitable small firm. How much should we charge? How much should we pay our employees? How can we plan for profit? Download our free course, Profit for Small Firm Architects. We'll teach you everything you need to know. It's at entrearchitect.com slash free course. You are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 208. Welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, or you may be in the process right now of launching a startup Is that you? Or you may be like me, an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference every day. This podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. The future of architecture for small firms and I would say to an extent, all architecture firms, is the remote team. Using technology and online tools to acquire new clients, manage projects, and work with a team of top professionals distributed throughout the world, the virtual studio with a remote team will allow you the flexibility, the freedom, the prosperity, and the success that many of us are seeking as small firm architects. In this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, 
how to build a million dollar small firm using a remote team with Win Whitman of selfbuiltarchitect.com. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, Gusto, FreshBooks, and Core by BQE Software. And I'm going to share a little bit more about these great companies later in the show. But as we get started here, take a quick note to schedule some time this week to go visit each one of them. RCAT, Gusto, FreshBooks, and Core by BQE. And let them know that you appreciate them for supporting us because when they support us, they're supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Wynn Whitman, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hello, Mark. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. Wynn Whitman is a, is a contemporary residential architect based in Austin, Texas. His work's been featured in numerous publications, including Architectural Record, Architectural Digest, The Rob Report, uh, Green Building and Design, Hinge, The Discovery Network, uh, HGTV. So he's been all over. He has a BA from Tufts and a Master's of Architecture at the uh, University of Texas in Austin. Uh, he's received plenty of awards from the AIA, World Architecture News, the best green innovation from Green Building and Design for his Whitman panel designs. We'll have to talk about that someday too. I'd love to hear about that. Um, Wynn is also the founder of Self-Built Architect. So you may have heard him heard about him from there because I know there's a lot of buzz in the Entree Architect community about this guy. <laughs> and so I wanted to I wanted to int- you know invite him here uh, let him tell tell his story about what he's doing and uh, and talk about this program that he's has. So it, a self-built architect for anybody who doesn't know is an online community uh, and an educational program where Wynn shares his knowledge about leveraging technology and using in, uh, online tools to create personal freedom, prosperity, professional excellence. So that that's what I want to talk about today. I, I want to learn how to build a million dollar business by using a remote team. And that's what I want to I want to learn the, the tips and techniques the, the, uh, what you're doing over at Self-Built Architect Win, But before we get into that, I want to know about you. I want you to sh- sort of share your origin story, go back as far as you want to go. Uh, uh, where did you discover architecture? What inspired you to become an architect? And then give us that story from, uh, from that point forward to where you find yourself today. Thank you, Mark. My love for architecture started in my mother's basement, woodworking as a kid. And uh, I spent my entire adolescence down in that basement, trying not to chop off my fingers. <laughs> it sounds like Several... my, my son, Henry, he's, he's had the same problem and actually has three stitches in his pinky right now from sharpening an axe. So, <laughs> Yeah, I had several trips to the emergency room. And from that came a love of art and architecture. I majored in art history at Tufts. And about my, actually, I didn't discover that. I I was a liberal arts major and I bounced around everything from English literature to human factors and engineering before I discovered art history. And I fell in love with architecture. And one of my professors, Margaret Henderson Floyd, suggested that I go down to Austin. She said, when Boston is way too parochial for you, you need to go to Austin, Texas. So even then I was a bit of a rebel and uh, I made it down to Austin and I had my first margarita 
and I saw all the pretty girls walking down 6th Street, and I decided this was the place for me. So, so your teacher, your teacher knew you well. She did. <laughs> Fast forward a few years later, I have my master's, and there's a recession going on, and none of the firms are hiring young architects. So I begin buying and fixing up homes and selling them. And then I discovered an unfinished office building and the developer had gone bankrupt. The building was sitting, it was basically just a steel frame with glass on it. And I put in an offer of $105,700. And then over the next year and a half, a ragtag team and myself with no building permits, it was just outside <laughs> the city limits, we were running our own wires, we were using heavy equipment. Uh, it was a great learning experience. And I finished the building and just as I was finishing it, I received a call from a company called Reese Design. They design aircraft interiors for luxury jets. Uh, their clients include the Sultan of Brunei and Adnan Khashoggi. They, they loved the building and they bought it from me and I made my first million at age 27. Not bad. So It's a good, I, good way to get started. Pull yourself out of a recession. It was a good way to get started. I flew up to Chicago and did what every 27-year-old does who gets a million dollars. I bought a red Ferrari <laughs> and I drove home. I like to say that, uh, that I invested 90% uh, of the money in women and cars and I wasted the other 10%. Yeah, yeah. So when I got back to Austin, uh, the idea of going to work for a for firm was suddenly less attractive to me. And I began developing and building very unusual homes, homes that realtors would tell me I had no chance of selling. And lo and behold, I would always find a buyer. And so, were so you, were this, these houses that, you, that yeah. the realtors, I, that that's sort of something that, that um, triggers with me because are those houses, are you designing contemporary houses that, that you're yes. talking about? And, yes. Yeah, and so the realtors are looking at them and saying there's no market for that. The market's too small. Right. right? Yeah. Right. And of course, now everybody's doing contemporary. And I guess I was a little bit ahead of my time, but I managed to make it work. And I sold my last spec for a record price of $3.7 million in that area in 2007. By that time, I was already practicing architecture as well. And that's in Texas. I got You're my still license. in Texas. That was there. in Texas. Yeah. Then the recession of 2008 hit. And at that time, I had a fairly traditional office setup. I was renting office space in a cool old brick building. And I felt really important. And I had my own plotters and employees and workstations. But I noticed that I wasn't making any money at the end of the day. I had my expenses were eating up all of my profits. <clears throat> then the recession of 2008 hit. By 2010, all of my work had dried up. I had to let my employees go. 
I had to get rid of my office and I realized that I had to do things in a different way. And it's about that time that I began to realize all the tools that had recently become available to allow people to work essentially from anywhere with an internet connection. And I read books like The Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. And slowly but surely, I cobbed together a virtual firm. So what? You, so and, in two, that's 2010. You realize that you closed the office, and do you mm -hmm. do you right away start building that new firm, that new idea? I would say yes. I mean, basically, my office became virtual, by, by <laughs> not default. by desire, yeah. but by default. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I had to figure out a way to. I. I at that point, I still had a bit of a reputation for high-end contemporary residential work, and I needed to maintain the same high-touch approach to architecture and to dealing with my clients. I couldn't suddenly go from meeting in a nice brick historic building to meeting at Starbucks. So I began with the premise that I did not want the client experience to suffer at all as a result of my remote working. And we'll get into some of the ways that I do that in a minute. But fast forward in the last uh, 10 years, I've been able to build up a remote firm with independent contractors uh, that I believe to be the, la the largest cloud-based firm in the world. We typically have, right now we have 14 million plus projects going and we have more homes going than the largest uh, brick and mortar residential architecture firm here in Austin. So a lot of times people say, well, do you have a small firm? <laughs> and small is one of those pejorative terms. It's almost assumed that you have to have a big firm, but my goal was never to be big. My job was to, my goal was to have the kind of lifestyle that I wanted to have the freedom and mobility and resources to live my life as I wish while practicing amazing architecture. So that's what I set out to do and things are still evolving and I'm having a great time at it and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, this this is a subject that I get a, a, a lot of feedback on. I, many, many architects in the Entree Architect community um, are some of them by default are working remotely. Some of them are choosing to work remotely. Um, your story and my story are similar, except for the 27-year-old millionaire. <laughs> I, I went through the same recessions you did. I, I suffered trying to get a job when I first came out of architecture school, 2010. The only difference between you and me in 2010 is that I started using my credit card to keep the firm open and fell into a lot Ooh. of debt. Um, something that, that I've talked about on other episodes, um, have, have since then cleaned that all up, but that was a big mistake that I made, um, rather than just closing the office like you did. Um, I sort of, I, I was fortunate in that I lost all my credit cards because my, my credit was so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that I, we have very good credit, always had good credit and yeah. but just had a lot of debt, 
you know, just a lot of debt yeah. and, yeah. and got out of that debt. Um, but, but then when the economy came back, that's when, so you, you sort of discovered this remote team, this re- virtual office or whatever you want to call it, uh, right around 2010, I went through the recession with the brick and mortar office. Things came back. My firm had shrunk. Um, and, and my lease had come up and I'm like, I'm looking around at the same tools you are and saying, why am I going to renew that lease? Why am I going to start growing that big firm again and spending all that money on, on, on expenses and, and overhead when I could go home, I could send my staff home. I could, and I could build my own office at home and do everything remotely. And so I, I did the same thing. And so, um, and so we do get a lot of feedback on, on that. So I, I want to talk about um, sort of how you did that. Maybe, maybe back in 2010, what did you do? And then what's changed since 2010? Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. We could not do this without them. So please support them. RCAT, Gusto, FreshBooks, and Core by BQE Software. The time has come for your firm to begin gathering product and material information for its next project. You've been there, I've been there, we've all been there. Let's say that you're tasked with finding the top gas fireplace manufacturers and you need CAD, BIM, and specifications. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a search engine that showed you who has the data you need so you don't have to go all through Google and find a piece here and a piece there and spend the entire day finding this? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a search engine, one search engine that did all of that? There is. It's called rcat.com. Search for a product or even a CSI section and get a list of North American manufacturers and the data they offer. And even better, you can download all that technical data for free. You don't even have to register to use RCAT. You don't even have to give them your email address. It's free. Save your time, your money, and your frustration and just go to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Payroll and benefits. You love them? No, they're hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations, right? We're all in that mode right now with taxes and regulations. The old school payroll providers that some of us are using, they just, they're not built for the way that we work today. Gusto, our friends at Gusto, they're making payroll and benefits and and human resources easy for us small businesses. Modern technologies, they do all the heavy lifting, so it's easy for us to get it right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners here at Entree Architect Podcast exclusive limited time deal, right? Sign up today and you'll get three months free, three months that's long enough to figure this thing out, right? Three months free once you run just one payroll. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash gusto, G-U-S-T-O, and claim your free three months of payroll processing right now. Entrearchitect.com slash gusto. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. They do everything. 
My favorite feature in FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. I love this. I think that sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as an entrepreneur architect. If we're not sending invoices, we're not getting paid. FreshBooks makes it easy to send out invoices and get paid online with the click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay you on time, FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder through a simple system that you have full control of. I love this. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get paid faster. Get the simplest way to be more productive, to get organized, and most importantly, like I said, get paid faster. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access FreshBooks for free for 30 days and be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. One of the most often requested resources here at the Entree Architect community is project management software. The whole, how do we manage our projects? How do we keep our projects and our people organized while we grow as entrepreneur architects? Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of the award-winning BQE Core. It's their new product. Core puts project management, business intelligence, billing, time and expense tracking, and accounting together in one intuitive, powerful platform. It's a beautiful system. I've seen it work. There's a demonstration uh, on our on our website. You should go check it out with its cloud platform and their mobile app. Core lets you manage people, projects, and profits from anywhere in the world. Get your fully functional 15-day trial of Core by going to entrearchitect.com slash BQE. That's entrearchitect.com slash BQE. Go check it out right now. RCAT, Gusto, FreshBooks, and Core by BQE Software. Go visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Talk about how you started it first. So I started it by figuring out that I needed a conference room to meet clients in. A luxury conference room with video conferencing capabilities. And I accomplished this by renting a, an apartment in a luxury high rise that had a communal conference room that one could reserve online. And I still maintain a place in that building. I also sought out other alternative conference rooms that I could use in a pinch. One of those is uh, a home automation company. And they've created this beautiful conference room where they can show off all of their TV and audio products. And, and they would love nothing more than an architect to bring in a client who's building a $4 million home to make that subtle introduction. Right. So if one thinks creatively about it, there's really any number of, of places that you can meet that are suitable. And now there are plenty of uh, places that actually have conference rooms for rent such as WeWork and, and similar outlets. But I started um, with a lot of the same tools that I had used in my brick and mortar, but I began to think, well, okay, if I don't have the plotter anymore, 
then I need to find a reprographic company. And as I did that, I realized, man, this is so much easier than loading the paper and <laughs> servicing the plotter. And so every aspect of my firm that I had been doing, whether it was delivering things, you know, suddenly I had a courier service. And the internet and the program GoToMeeting was really the tipping point, I think, in being, being able to work remotely both with team members and clients. So once I was able to do that, then suddenly I became a laptop architect. Now certainly I, I still had to meet with my clients periodically, but when I wasn't meeting with my clients, I could work remotely. And in 2016, I spent a month in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, two weeks in Colorado, two weeks in Jerusalem, a couple of trips to New York, Jackson Hole, Pebble Beach. And some of my clients knew that I was traveling, some didn't. I try to prepare my clients for the fact that I have a busy schedule, that I work not only remotely, but I also work in other states. We have a project right now in Louisiana. We have uh, offices, virtual office in Austin and Dallas, where I, uh, a builder lets me use their office. So with today's technology, it's entirely possible to not have a brick and mortar office and still have a robust practice with a high degree of client service. Do you, do you, have you ever experienced any pushback from clients? The only time I've experienced pushback from clients is when I haven't properly prepared them. Or, for example, there was one client that transitioned from when my firm was going through a transition, overlapped that transition, and there was some resistance in that case. Yeah, they, but, they were expecting you know, one thing and got something else. So it comes right. down to managing expectations that right from the beginning, they need to know the way you work and the structure, how the structure works and, and how it actually benefits them more than, than takes away from the process. It's actually a good thing. Right. And a lot of these people are very busy. One of my current clients is the CEO of one of the largest tech companies here in Austin as uh, 14,000 employees. And he's always traveling. And he loves the fact that we can knock out a design session and he's an engineer. So he's very, very much into yeah. the, the details and the specifics and the fact that we can, we can do a design session. And sometimes it's not even remote. Sometimes it's at his house. So that's another example of not being tied down to an office, but freeing up your calendar, you're not managing people, you're not managing offices. As I'll get into later, I'm not keeping track of time or hours. It's all very cut and dried. And so that frees up my day to the point where I'm only working an hour or two a day, typically on design, maybe less. And the rest of the time can be rainmaking activities, networking activities, and client meetings at their place. 
you you and I both uh, went into this remote team structure having already had a a reputation, already having a, a, a brick and mortar office. Um, and so when we went to a remote structure, um, we already had that reputation. So we people already knew who we were, they knew the brand. Um, do you think this is a model that that architects coming out of school or somebody starting their first firm, do you think it's still a model that they can use? Or, or do you think there are challenges um, with that structure when there's no reputation yet? Uh, is there an expectation that an architect has an office? No, if anything, I think there's less of an expectation that an architect has an office when there's no reputation. And I'm currently mentoring several young architects and I coach architects in setting up or transitioning to this type of office. So uh, I think it's entirely possible, it's probably preferable. Young architects, millennials are much more receptive to uh, this type of working method and their clients in the future, if they're still buying houses, which is a whole other topic that we can talk about sometime, are also more receptive to the idea of using technology. There's a, a video that I saw on YouTube last week, and it's an older man interviewing a, a young woman who's coming in for a possible job and saying things like, well, do you know Excel and PowerPoint? And she says, no, I, but I know Instagram and Snapchat. <laughs> And he says, do you, are you willing to get here at 8 a.m.? And she said, no, I have to take my dog out and have my latte and this and that. And, and they were making fun of this young woman, but I thought the real fool was the old guy. Yeah. Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram are a hell of a lot more important to know in today's economy than Excel and PowerPoint. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And I think the millennials actually have their priorities right versus our generation in that they, they realize that life is more important than work. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, the digital tools, the technology, um, we have evolved to that technology. They've grown up with that technology. It's, not, it's, it's just a part of life to them. They're not necessarily tools. Um, to them it's they're just it's just part of the process of of living is that you have the internet and you have technology and you have these different uh software and it's just it's just the way we all work now yeah so so from a from a, i want to sort of break this up into two pieces one i want i want to look at the remote firm from the client's perspective and how do you keep that high touch uh um impression going and then look at the actual team itself and how that team works. Um, so, so walk me through a process when you have a new, a, a potentially new client, how do they first interact with you? And then what's the process to, to onboard them into this new structure? Great question. So the first thing they do is they don't get a voicemail. <laughs> they get a live human being answering the phone. It sounds exactly like, get calling Gensler or SOM. Uh, and I, I'll get into how I do that in a minute. But uh, 
Then I immediately call them back. The service that I use uh, texts me or can forward the call to me directly. I can usually, if it's an it's a prospective client, I will take the call regardless of where I am, and then I will set up an appointment. And one thing my business coach taught me years ago, and coaching has been incredibly valuable to me, is that until you sign up a client, the purpose of every meeting is to have another meeting. So immediately, there is a very high touch. I never send out a proposal, never have sent out a proposal. Someone wants me to send a proposal, I know that they're not the person for me. I know that they're just kicking tires. I never charge for an initial visit. And the reason, I won't say I never do, I only do in two situations. If I'm not sure that they're serious or if I'm not sure that I'm interested. Right, so you can kind of weed them out by using, right. the, using the, the fee. Otherwise, I go meet with them either on their property or in a conference room. The initial meeting is always about gathering information. At that point, I set up a second appointment <clears throat> because studies show the more you meet with somebody, the more you look into their eyes and talk to them, the more the, the safer, the more trusting they're going to be. And, and you, it's vice versa as well. You can size them up. Yeah. So in-person meeting followed up by what I call my roadmap. My roadmap is a presentation for everything that we're going to do, everything that they're going to get. It's not a bunch of legalese. It's not a bunch of numbers. It's about what their dream is and how I'm going to fulfill their dream. And once we establish that I can do that, then we'll talk about the numbers. And do, you, do, you, do you talk the numbers in that same meeting or is that another meeting? I talked to, I talked the numbers in the second meeting, but I don't present a contract. The contract is sent via DocuSign, another great tool. Yeah. And uh, and then they sign the contract online. So you, and that, you have a you have a verbal yeah. agreement at that second meeting. So you know you they want to go ahead and and you'll put together an agreement and send that to them. I don't I don't always get a verbal agreement at that point. I would say uh, of the people that go to the second meeting, maybe uh, 70% end up signing and, and moving forward. But the way that I look at these situations is sort of like baseball. You know, if I'm batting 300, I'm in the Hall of Fame. That means I'm striking out seven out of 10 times. Yeah. In reality, of the people that I actually meet, I get about 60% of those jobs. Right, and, and the ones you don't get are ones you don't want. They're probably not a good fit. Yeah, yeah. So, so, we, so you're doing, it takes quite a bit of time. So you're doing two meetings um, and, and probably a follow-up with this, once you send out the DocuSign, there's probably questions on that, right? So that's probably either a, a video conference or a telephone call or a third meeting to review the agreement. Right, um, right. What do you do at the beginning to qualify the people coming in? So Great you're not, not going to do all this time with every client that calls. 
Um, no. there, there's a process that they have to go through before you even set up that first meeting. So what is that like? So typically I get anywhere from two to 10 inquiries a day of new potential clients. And a lot of these are coming through my Facebook marketing program, mm -hmm. which again is something I, I can go into or teach people how to do. And uh, once they get to my website, a lot of architects' websites look like they're designed for other architects. Yep. <laughs> they're pretty pictures and not much more. And what I realized, again, through working with one of my business coaches is your website should be more about the people you serve than it is about you. So it speaks to them. It establishes authority in the marketplace, third party credibility through testimonials, publications, things like that. And most importantly, it has something called the vision blueprint which people who click on the vision blueprint, it asks them a series of about 15 questions, everything from, do you own the property? You know, how large of a house do you wanna build? What is your budget? How many square feet? Which of these areas is most important to you and least important on a scale of one to 10? And, and uh, it goes through living room, bathroom, kitchen, office, all of these. How soon? You know, what is the time frame? Is it six months? Is it two years? I mean, to me, that is a huge one right there. The big ones are, do they have the money to do it? Is this just a dream, a distant dream? Yep. If they've purchased the land, they pro they're probably pretty serious about it. So once they fill out my vision blueprint, all of this gets instantly emailed to me. And I have it in hand before I call them. So I'm immediately able to tell where they want to build, how large of a house, what styles they like, if they need a mortgage broker recommendation. I'm constantly refining my questionnaire, but it's good enough that I can immediately uh, figure out which ones I don't want. The ones that I don't want, rather than just simply telling them no, a lot of times I will actually refer them out to some of my subcontractors to give them a chance to uh, develop their skills. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I do. It's rather than telling them no or, or can't help you. I, I'll just let them know that we're not a good fit and, and we sort of guide them to somebody that we think is a good fit and help some other local architects also. Um, so, so you're, you're pre-qualifying, it's all automated for one, so that's a, that's interesting. So your website is doing a lot of the talking. So your website is built to pre-qualify, um, and then and then uh, your vision blueprint is sort of doing the heavy lifting on qualification. It's it's not only giving you lots of information, but it's giving the client a lot of information about who this person is and who this architect is, what they're expecting. Um, am I comfortable giving these inf this information? Because if I'm not a good fit for you. I'm not going to want to give all the information that you're you're asking me. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're not going to be wasting a lot of time. There's probably a lot of people that hit that vision blueprint, start looking at it and say, this is not this is not going to work out. And they don't even contact you. And so you're not right. so you're not wasting time on either end. Uh, work, you know, talking to people that, you know, isn't a, are not a good fit. Another reason why I think 
the time spent upfront and on the website is important. I was talking to a very well-known architect at, at the AIA uh, a couple months back at the Christmas party. And he was saying, you know, I don't know how you get those jobs. We just don't have enough homes in town to walk people through. And, and so-and-so does, and, and, and you probably do. And I said, I almost never walk people through a home. I mean, it's probably like one in 10. And I think the reason is I'm establishing that credibility through in other ways, whether right. it's through my website, through testimonials from clients, giving for, you know, phone numbers of former clients so people can call. People have to become, become comfortable with you in some way. And really visiting one of your homes you know, it, it's one way to become comfortable with your abilities, but it's not the only way. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think the meetings that you go through, the face to face, like you said before, you're building a tremendous rapport when you're doing that, when you're meeting with people oh, and here's, face to face. Here's one tip. Never sit across the table from a prospective client. You always sit either next to them or catty corner. Yeah. When you sit across the table from somebody, it's like two lawyers at a deposition. Yeah. You're an opponent. You create this adversarial posture. Yeah. yeah, that's a good tip. That's a good tip. And that's that's interesting because typically the client will expect that you will be face to face. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll sort of point you to the seat and they're going to sit in the other seat and and so do you sort of when that happens, do you sort of position yourself to go in another chair? I guide chair? them I guide them to the seat where they're supposed to sit. So you, Again, you guide them before they do. Establishing authority. Yeah. 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 I say, would you mind sitting here? Or, yeah. 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 Very good. Very good. So, so you're pre-qualifying. They're going through the website. They're going through the vision. They're calling you. Actually, they're calling a service. So talk mm -hmm. about the service a little bit. So they're calling a number, and they're rather than getting a voicemail or some automated message, um, or or you. Right. You're not answering. the I, phone. I use a service called Ruby receptionists and they do a fantastic job. It's the best two hundred and fifty nine dollars a month that you can possibly spend. And and they will patch the call through. They know everything about my business. They screen out solicitors and tell them to take us off their call list. It's uh, they can patch it through to my subcontractors as well. Just like a regular office. Yeah, <laughs> that might be that calls. that takeaway right there might be the the, the best nugget yeah. of the whole episode here. Because imagine how much time you could save when somebody else is answering that telephone call and doing all of that legwork for you, and you're only getting the calls that you absolutely have to get. Mm -hmm. And so, so you're getting that call. That call's coming through. Um, you're you're having that initial conversation, and and that conversation is all about setting up that first meeting. You're going to that first meeting, you're presenting, um, you're, you're gathering information at that first meeting, and then you're scheduling a second meeting. The second meeting is about you now pushing information back to them. So you're sort of pulling in the first one, pushing in the second one, you're giving them a presentation in the second one. Um, and at that point, you've probably at that point, you both know whether this is going to be a good fit or not, that either they're going to they're going ahead or they're not going ahead at that at the end of that meeting, right? Right. And the operative word is information. One thing I've learned is a no is simply a request for more information. 
This is a very confusing process for most people. And sometimes when they say no, if you press them a little bit on it, you find out that it's actually that they're lacking some piece of information. Yeah, the the um, Sandler sales system that I've had um, uh, Rochelle Carrington on the episode on the podcast before, and one of the things she teaches is to get to know as fast as you can, get to know. So so you either want them to say no and 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 not waste your time, not waste their time that you're obviously not a fit, or get to know because no triggers they need more information to get to yes, and so the sooner that happens. The, yeah. the sooner you can either close the sale or move on to the next sale, because if it's not the right person, and you don't saying, want to waste a lot of time. Saying no, saying no to the wrong client is as important as saying yes to the right yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I I say very often, and people have heard me here on the on the episode on the podcast here, that sometimes you make the most money on the clients you 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 know, you pass up. <laughs> Right, because <laughs> you can go make more money on the best clients you can find. So even even when you think that 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 project is the best project you've ever seen, it's the project that's going to take you to the next level. It's going to get me published, but there are tons of red flags from that client. It's a project to pass. Yep, I have a fifteen million dollar house that I designed that I wish I'd passed on. <laughs> so there you go, there you go, perfect example. Yep. And, and I bet you those red flags were right there day one. They were. And one of them was, well, we've done this a few times before and it's always worked out badly. We've <laughs> always hated our architect and our builder and we've not remained friends. And we don't want that to happen this time. <laughs> and you said, where do I sign? <laughs> Let's yeah. do it. And I thought, oh, I can make it different. I yeah. can, you know. Yeah, yeah. Red flags. So pay attention to them. Use your intuition. When when your intuition is telling you no, there's a reason why your intuition is telling you no. Um, so so you you have that meeting. You sign. You go through DocuSign, and then now you actually have a, a project. What's that process like when you're actually working uh, with a remote team um, from a client's point of view? What's happening during the project when you're managing the process? So when I'm designing. I'm typically sketching, maybe on my iPad Pro, maybe on Trace, snapping a picture of that, texting it to one of my subcontractors. They then work it up in SketchUp. We get on a go-to meeting and review that and move it in real time. I only work with people who are extremely proficient at SketchUp. I find it invaluable. The files can be exported in a DXF and taken into Revit, which is where we do our larger projects construction documents. Smaller projects can actually all be done in SketchUp layout. Uh, and SketchUp keeps getting more and more powerful. Yeah, yeah. So I like to set up regular meetings. I find that if meetings go for more than two weeks, if it goes for more than two weeks between meetings with a client, there's a good chance that the project is going to go off the rails or the client's going to lose interest. So ideally, I meet with them in person every two weeks and I meet with them online every other week mm -hmm. on the weeks that I don't meet with them. Now, 
I have a client on a very large house that I've only met with once. If it's an out-of-town client, I always fly down there. I always meet with them in person. I have to see the site and talk to the builder and that kind of thing. So, And then everything other, else is remote. And then everything else is remote. And I use GoToMeeting. And there's also Zoom, which I know you use. Yeah. There's WebEx. And I'm sure there'll be something new you know, next yeah. week. Yeah, but those tools are so important because you can talk to anybody real time anywhere in the world and look face to face. Like you and I right now, we're recording this using yeah. Skype. We're looking at each other. We can see each other's expressions. We can sort of uh, read each other's facial expressions. And so it, it's it's really important to be able to, to do that. Um, one of the things you, you talked about, and I, and I wanted to make sure I wanted to point it out, is that you only work with the most proficient staff. And when you're working yes. remotely, now your pool of potential employees becomes the entire world. So if we right. were in a brick and mortar and you had to have, have people come to your office every day, your, your circle is maybe a half hour commute or maybe an hour commute. That's your radius of where you can pull mm -hmm. uh, potential employees from. Now, with remote teams, you literally have the entire world to pick from. The, the world is my Rolodex. Right. Yes. And so now you literally can find the best uh, sketch up um, artists and, and um, producers that you can find. It's just a matter right. of who. One who of them is in Vermont, and he ended up actually moving to Austin because we we work full time. He he works essentially full time for me now, yeah. and I have uh, someone else in New Hampshire, and she's moving to Seoul, South Korea, and she handles all of our a lot of our Revit. And the cool thing about that is she can be working at night while we're asleep and we'll wake up in the morning and it'll be in our in inbox. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And you said before that, that when you first start a project, you're doing some sketching on your iPad and then you're sending that off to your team. What is your role in the, in the, in the process? So you're doing a lot, obviously a lot of the upfront, you know, client contact work and you're doing design. Um, and then the team sort of takes over. Do you have do you have dedicated teams per project, or do you sort of are you scheduled? Are you structured horizontally or vertically? Do you have teams for every project, or do you have tasks for the process? Does that make sense? I have. I don't have a fixed way of doing it. I think it depends on the project. Yeah and the tasks involved in the project. For example, we have a job coming up right now that is not particularly a job that I wanted originally. It was, it's a very large Tuscan house that they want to basically redo the whole interior, rip out some walls, probably a two, two and a half million dollar remodel but they, it's not contemporary. It's not something I'm going to put on my website. And so I immediately recognize this is not really in my wheelhouse. They interviewed four architects. He, I've never actually met this man in person. He met all three other architects. My fee was 30% higher than, than all of the other architects. And he still went with me because I did multiple meetings with him. 
I did uh, online go-to meeting. I spoke with him one time for about an hour, barely talked about architecture. I knew his realtor and the builder that he had selected, and so I talked to them extensively, and that's where a lot of that's where this referral came from was from the realtor. By the way, referrals are about ten times more likely to come from a realtor than from a builder. That's just the way things flow. They flow from the realtor to the architect to the builder. Yeah, yeah. Does doesn't mean that you shouldn't develop close relationships with builders, but. Uh, So I don't know where I was going with that, but it was just kind of, so I recognized, I, I remember that I didn't, this wasn't really in my wheelhouse. So I called up an interior designer I know who, this is all she does, this style. And so she's going to work for me exclusively as part of my team when we walk in the client doesn't need to know, you know, that she's hasn't worked for, you know, 10 years for me. Right. But uh, I think it's really important to know where your where your genius lies, where your skill set lies and to delegate all those other areas yep. where it doesn't to, to very capable, highly compensated people. All of my subcontractors make significantly more than they would make and have greater freedom than, you know, than they would have in a traditional office or an average architectural office. And you said you're, you're not managing their process, right? You're not managing their time. They're not doing time nope. sheets for you. So it's not hours. It's outcomes. That's right. the other things. And I don't like to charge for hours and I don't like to pay for hours, you know, when you get a bill from your lawyer and you're kind of trepidating when you open the envelope and you don't know whether it's going to be a thousand dollars or three thousand yeah. <laughs> dollars, there's to me hours are only something that a client can argue about, feel bad about, and watch the clock the entire time that they're with you. When I do charge hourly, my my hourly rate is is quite high, but I try to keep that to say less than 10% of the work that I do. That's only for additional services. And you're working outside the scope. Flat fee? Is that typically how you work? Typically, I'm working flat fee, I would say, in 70% of the cases and, and maybe a percentage in 30% of the case. Yep. I don't think there's any one right way. I think each job has a right, a best way to structure the billing and the pricing. But I will say this, clients are generally much more receptive to a single number. Yep. And I think when you get into tiered pricing, you may indeed eke out a little more profit on the jobs that you get, but there's a strong likelihood and there, there are several psychological studies that I've read that say you will actually get fewer jobs. So even though you make more on the ones you get, I'd rather focus on optimizing my practice, reducing my production costs by reducing my overhead 
And therefore, if I charge a fixed fee, obviously some of them I'm going to make I'm a killing on and some of them I'm going to lose my shirt on. Okay. I mean, in, in the worst case scenarios, right. but, but the average job, I've done so many of them. I know what's involved and I'm pretty good at predicting what it's going to take to, to get to the finish line. So things like construction administration, I limit to a certain number of hours because that's one of those nebulous things. What if it turns from a one year project into a four year project? Right. So you're managing expectations. You're, you're, you're handling that in your agreement. So you know what your limits are. You have limits and triggers that sort of help you, help you manage that. Um, but, but it's all about, for one, you you have a target market. You do a very similar type of work. So everybody knows who mm -hmm. you are and what you do. So you're not doing, you know, large commercial projects and additions and alterations and new homes and this and restaurants and that. And, and you have no system because you have, you're doing five different types of architecture with five different types of clients. You do, you're doing one type of architecture, residential, contemporary, and that's attracting similar types of clients. And so you can set up these systems and these processes to be able to manage those expectations throughout the process. Um, that's really important. And one of the reasons why you've become so successful at what you're doing. Um, let's talk about tools a little bit. You mentioned, um, uh, the service Ruby, Ruby, um, Ruby receptionist. Yep. Yeah. And go to meeting is your video conference. You're using SketchUp and Revit for production. Um, what are you using for like project management and communication with your team? So we sometimes use Slack and Asana, but I get a little annoyed with some of the reminders and some of these uh, project management softwares. I've tried uh, Basecamp. Honestly, I like to keep it very simple. It's, uh, it's an iCloud doc and every Monday morning I get this document that says where we are on which project, what the next step is. And I have another similar document that has the names of prospects on it, hot, warm, and cold, what my next plan is, what my next step is. And I have a third spreadsheet that is basically about cash flow. And with those three spreadsheets, I can pretty much uh, manage my firm. The other good thing is I don't talk to everybody in my firm. I really just talk to maybe one or two or three people and then they communicate with other subcontractors and direct the work and manage the work of other subcontractors. Right. So in an office, if I was, go ahead. Yeah. If I was managing the work of, of everybody, it would, it would be prohibitive time consuming. Yeah. And even in an office, that's difficult to do. But when you go remotely, that's almost impossible to do. And so, mm -hmm. so uh, if this was a traditional firm, you'd have, these would be project managers who would be then managing the staff who does the work, the, you know, the, the producers. Um, and so you're working with two or three, you know, main people who are sort of managing the projects and then they have teams below them who are managing or doing the work. Um, and you're doing the design, the fun stuff, the stuff you like to do. You're doing, the I'm client, doing the fun stuff. You're doing the client face-to-face yeah. -face stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing yeah. the business development stuff to make sure that the next project comes in. Um, 
what are you are you how are you bi billing and invoicing are you using any specific tools for that because i'm assuming that's all online as well right you're not are you sending a paper invoice or are you doing some online work well when i pay my subcontractors i use a program called zell quick pay chase has it wells fargo has it and you can transfer up to five thousand dollars <coughs> and it's instant and there's no charge for it. Some of my clients pay me using Zelle. Another thing that I do is I expect payment at the meeting. If I'm having a face-to-face -face meeting with them, two or three days before the meeting, I say, here's the invoice. It's, you know, for Thursday's meeting. We'll see you then. Yeah, so managing I'm not, expectations again. I just want to point that out. It yeah, yep. exactly. I, I think so many architects are chasing clients for payment. I just hate doing that. I know everybody hates doing that. There are going to be a few problem clients uh, that, that you know, won't pay on time. Work has to come to a grinding halt in those situations. You cannot get ahead of yourself. I... I remember in the last election cycle, there was an architect who said that he got screwed by Trump and, you know, owed him like $285,000. And I said, I thought to myself, <laughs> how the hell do you get that far in and, the red? And, and keep going. And keep going. <laughs> but yep. anyway. Yep. Yeah. And, and so when you're doing that invoice, when you're sending that invoice earlier, is that just another document that you're sending? Okay, this is this is how much we're expecting to receive when we meet? Yeah, I just, I don't, I've tried into it and I just like, um, and I'll be the first to admit that accounting is not my strong suit, but, and I have a bookkeeper who does all of that, but, and, and she's remote and I've met her twice in 10 years. <laughs> And she prepares everything for my CPA, and then my CPA just rubber stamps it and sends it out. But um, I don't use a lot of high tech for billing. I keep it pretty simple. Yeah. I don't. I don't. My invoices are very simple. The whole project might be broken into eight payments. There might be some more payments during construction administration that are spread out over the course of the construction. But even if I have 14 projects going on, I might, you know, I might only be invoicing half a dozen times a month because I try to, you know, break it into manageable payments and keep it simple. Yeah, keeping it very simple. I mean, and you said you're using iCloud documents, you can use Google documents, but basically yeah. it's just, just really simple, easy to use, easy to understand, easy to share. Uh, software, uh, you don't have to get into the big heavy duty, especially with small firms working with small teams. You know, there's not a lot of compl you know, c complexity to it. Uh, so keep it, we can keep it simple. Keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. So even, so not, not with a remote team, not using a lot of, you know, fancy tools. You're using GoToMeeting so you can see one another. You're using, you know, iCloud so you can, you know, share things back and forth. Dropbox. Dropbox. I use Dropbox, um, yeah. Uh, and then SketchUp and Revit, which, you know, can all be done online as well. And mm -hmm. so any other tools that you're using that's sort of yeah. helping you do what you do? 
I, I got my first iPad Pro this year uh, with the pencil. Yeah. And that's been kind of fun. So I enjoy that. But I still don't think it takes the place of pen and paper, trace. Yeah. Have you seen, uh, have you seen uh, yeah. Morfolio, the app for, for, uh, for sketching? No, I'll have we, to try we that just, out. We just did a um, inside the Entree Architect uh, membership. We do a thing called uh, work, uh, Workflow Friday once a month. Uh, we, we, a member will share a specific workflow that they're, that they're using successfully with the rest of the membership. And this month we did Morfolio. Um, and it's amazing, you know, with using an iPad Pro with the pencil, uh, and this software that this app that will sort of re re replicate the idea of using trace and layers and sketches and moving things, you know, you can underlay photographs and sketch over them and um, very easily, you know, produced into PDFs and, and uh, JPEGs and make it shareable, really interesting uh, software. There's another another tool that my one of my architects told me about yesterday that we're going to try that will allow us to be in different locations, each with an iPad Pro and drawing on the same drawing <laughs> there you at go. the same time. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you, and, go ahead, yeah. go. And yep. airplane that to a client or, you know, go to meeting. So they're seeing it. He's in Hawaii. I'm in Austin or vice versa. And we're all collaborating. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. The different technologies are, are amazing. Um, I, in my process, the, the one thing that I really miss the most uh, is the serendipity of, of sort of walking past somebody's drafting board and seeing something they're doing, mm -hmm. uh, striking up a conversation and that design getting better because of that, that, you know, that serendipity that goes away when you're working remotely. Is there anything that you do that sort of replaces that? I mean, obviously you're, you're meeting with your, your project managers on a regular basis, but do you intentionally, um, have any systems in place that sort of help you with that process or does that just go away in our it doesn't go away in our remote working sessions on sketchup it's amazing we often discover serendipitous things just because of the sketchup process like the other day i said go ahead and erase that wall well there was a box around the window that remained and we said, wow, that looks kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, why don't we just make that black metal and let it stick out and, and keep that box? So there's a different type of serendipity. And I find that my bonding, my connection with my subcontractors is a deliberate process. It usually happens whether you're in an office or not in an office. It usually happens outside of the office. So, for example, my wife's family has a ranch, and I invited one of my subcontractors down for the weekend. Just things like that, scheduling brunches, I invite the whole family. I don't, you know, my subcontractors can bring their kids and their husband, and I take everybody out to brunch at the Four Seasons a couple times a year. Things like that. Um, the serendipity and the design, you know, we still we still get together at coffee shops periodically when we're starting a project and yeah. and sketch together. I think it's important to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I think the tools, like you're saying, these tools where you're going to be able to work 
uh, together on the same document. You can do that with Revit, and you can you can do that. Um, you know, you'll have a tool that you can do that with with SketchUp and other tools. I think as these technologies evolve and they become more mature, that those kind of things are going to happen where we're going to work together more often. I also think video. I think um, mm-hmm. GoToMeeting and those types of of uh, tools are going to evolve that they become more real time that they become you know, like you can have a mm-hmm. monitor with your team on all the time so you can s- turn and ask the question you know at yeah. the moment you don't have to schedule a time to have a conversation you just turn over it and look at the monitor and say hey Sally you know what's the question that you had the other day let's talk about that you know i think those things will happen uh, as these remote uh, uh, structures evolve and grow and become more of the way we practice architecture Absolutely. God, when you're talking, I was thinking about something else that we use. Hmm. Um, maybe it'll come to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, let's let's uh, wrap things up. Let's. Um, yeah. What's? I want to ask you this this one question that I ask everybody. Um, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I would say. I, I want to say what I think was uh, one of the most important things in my own early evolution. I started going to places where I knew I would meet people of influence and have the, who had the wherewithal to potentially build the types of homes that I wanted to design. And I figured out that there was a health club in town where all of these guys worked out at 6 a.m. And it was more than I could afford at the time, but I got a membership to it and I would show up every morning and shoot the breeze with them in the locker room. So wherever that place is, it's really about, there's really only two things that can change your life. And that is, I go into this in my program a little bit, meeting a new person or acquiring a new piece of information. And sometimes the person provides the information, sometimes it might be through a book. But it's really about being receptive to meeting people. My best, one of my best clients of all time, I met early on at Starbucks. And I just struck up a conversation. I noticed, a man in a dirty T-shirt and a gimme cap get out of a three hundred thousand dollar car <laughs> and walk into Starbucks in, in Austin. And yes. I, in some, Austin, some green I said, flags started flying. <laughs> yeah, and he said, "I need me an architect." And <laughs> you know, next thing I knew, I had you know three years worth of work from him. So. I met my wife in an elevator. If I hadn't have said anything, and I actually didn't, <laughs> I didn't get her name or number the first time I met her. I had to continually ride that elevator for a week <laughs> until I met her again. That's very but funny. it's really about being open to and seizing those opportunities and not, not wasting your time watching Netflix, you know, really, really valuing your time and and devoting it to 
productive activities. And that's not to say, you know, you need your, your recharge time and your yeah. downtime and your fun time. But if you, if you structure your business in such a way that you're not doing all these other tedious tasks that go into managing an office, you are consequently going to have much more time, free time to do with essentially whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I wrap up every episode and I'll say it later when I wrap things up. Uh, if you build a better business, you can be a better architect. You have more, awesome. time, more time, more, more resources, more money to do the things you love to do. And, and maybe that's, you know, more design. Maybe that's spending more time with your family. Maybe that's, you know, hanging out in mm -hmm. Starbucks, hoping the next Ferrari shows up. <laughs> you know? Right. The Remote working for me is not about saving money. It's about creating freedom and opportunity. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. And, and the, the fact that you save money is great, but it's the, it's the icing, not the cake. Yeah, totally agree. That's a great way to, to wrap up. Uh, I totally agree with you on that. And that is that it's, it's about building a lifestyle uh, of, of flexibility and freedom and doing the things that you really want to do. And be, you can build any firm that you want. You can build a firm that's designing skyscrapers. You could design, you know, a firm that, that, you know, does, you know, uh, uh, pre prefab sheds, whatever it is, you can do it in this model. Uh, it's really, it's really an amazing, um, time that we're living in. Uh, winwhitman.com is the architecture firm. If you want to go see the blueprint, uh, vision blueprint, it's there. Uh, winwhitman.com. I highly recommend. It's a great website. I love the way it's designed. Uh, selfbuiltarchitect.com is the training pro, uh, platform that Win has put together. It talks all about building these successful firms using a remote team. Um, Win, you also have, do you have something that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, a couple of things. <clears throat> if people are interested in exploring the idea of one-on-one -on -one coaching, either short-term, long-term, it could be really quick, it could be a month or three months, I have some packages at uh, selfbuiltarchitect.com forward slash P forward slash coach me. And then I'm going to put together something uh, that I normally charge for, but I'm going to put together something free for just especially for Entree Architect listeners. And we'll have that at selfbuiltarchitect.com forward slash Entree, E-N-T-R-E. E-N-T-R-E, selfbuiltarchitect.com slash E-N-T-R-E. And that's a video? Yeah, that you're giving yeah, away there. Video. Okay, uh -huh. yeah. So, so uh, selfbuiltarchitect.com slash entree, uh, selfbuiltarchitect slash p slash coach me, but that's also all at selfbuiltarchitect, right? Not the, not the entree, but the first one. You can go there and probably click a link for coaching as well, right? Uh, I don't we're gonna have the link have anyway. On there, we're gonna have we yeah. we will have it on our our page. We'll have them in the show notes. This is episode two hundred eight. And so entrearchitect.com slash 208 is going, we're going to have the links where everything we talked about, all the tools, uh, including awesome. these things at the end here. So you can just go to entrearchitect.com slash episode 208 and get all of it, including the link to get the free video. Um, Win, thank you. This has been uh, a lot of fun. This is a subject that I love to talk about. I think that this is the future of architecture, especially small firm architecture. I think this is the way we're all going to be practicing in the future. 
Um, and I think it'll probably be some combination of, of like you said, there's some brick and mortar and some remote, uh, but this is the future of small firms. So thank you very much for spending some time here and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Hey, if you like this episode, I encourage you to share it with a friend. That's how we're growing this podcast. One architect at a time, one listener at a time, one share at a time. This is episode 208. So the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 208. Go to town right now. Share it with a friend. Put it on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Email it to everybody you know. entrearchitect.com slash episode 208. Hey, and don't forget to download the free course we have for you. It's free and it's going to teach you how to put together a profitable architecture firm. Profit for small firm architects, entrearchitect.com slash free course. And enrollment for Entree Architect Mastermind Groups will be opening soon. So watch social media or come back to this podcast right here. Listen for the announcement. Watch. This is the most powerful membership program we offer. You want to be part of this sharing knowledge, setting goals, finding accountability for your progress, you'll find it at Entree Architect Mastermind. Stay tuned for more information. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business. I challenge you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? 
follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.